Okay, having completed the topic of, or at least for our purposes, the Bible, or uh, proving God and proving Christ, at this point we move to the Bible, uh, which is where we a lot of times want to go. And there's, going to be, there's a ton of material here uh, to go through. Um, really, probably in most cases, if you have convinced somebody and, and talked about the existence and of God and they're convinced of that if, if, if you have talked with somebody and they've accepted the death and resurrection you don't really need to prove the Bible That's, they're kind of already signed up you know what I mean they're, they're already willing to accept things they would probably be willing to listen to the Bible but we will go through this uh, material anyway uh, because some people don't want to accept certain things well we want to look at some various theories, uh, first of all, that exist to diminish the legitimacy of the Bible. Why would people not want to accept the Bible? Or who would? Who would not want to accept the Bible? Okay, so we've got a couple of groups, and I think I heard both of them. So... First of all, as we look at opposition to the Bible, there's external sources, which is the obvious one, right? Um, so we would have two groups under here. Atheism. Any, anybody who is humanistic or whatever does not want to accept the Bible. Even if they accept, okay, there's a man named Jesus and whatever, and we've gone through all that. Um, I, don't, I don't believe it. There is still another group of non-Christians that would deny this. Who would those groups be? They're not atheists. The other Muslims. Okay. Any other? You know that Muslims believe that the apostles were inspired? Do you know that they say that? Well, that should be pretty open and shut. Okay, let's open. No, well, see, um, we don't have the Bible as it originally was. See, it's, it's been lost over the years and mistranslated and blah, 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 blah. Right? That's, that's their arguments for that. Um, so, <clears throat> so other faiths are, are, are you know, competing for oxygen, if you want to say. They're, they're, they're trying to survive. They're competing for oxygen in the religious world, so they have to diminish the Bible. So that's from external sources. But we also have, even within Christianity, people who diminish the Bible. Why would, in the world would you do that? What would the motives be for that? Okay. So, so the first thing is that there's a moral objection to something. We don't like what it's telling me, so that's then, this is now, um, what have you. <clears throat> um, those were just old things that had to do with that culture or... Those were things that, that people put in later, or in this particular area, they added that. Um, so um, there's also another thing here, is what we call enlightened worldviews. <clears throat> By an enlightened worldview, some people think they're just too smart. Right? We just, well, I had a Bible professor, and you, know, and you, you start tracing things, and, and sometimes the Bible isn't hip, right? It's not so modern. It doesn't, it, it's not 
culturally acceptable, um, that's not new. That stuff was going on in the first century. People were too smart for the Bible. That's why John wrote his Gospels and his letters. John was dealing with enlightened people. The word Gnosticism, we talked about that, means to know. The knowing ones. They knew. Uh, They were uh, largely uh, Greek Christians or even sometimes Hebrew Christians that had been influenced by people in Alexandria, which was a really educated place, right? really super educated. And, uh, and they just knew. They were just too smart. And so John had to be like, well, you're not so smart as you really think you are. Uh, here's a couple of books for that. Uh, so, um, so sometimes it, it's important to understand the motives of why people uh, are, are dealing with things. There are other motives besides that. In dealing with the motive, sometimes you can not have to know all this information that we're going through and still handle what people need and remove their opposition. For example, if a person's opposition to the Bible has to do with the experiential or emotional things that they, you know, like people reject God and, and things, maybe they had a abusive parent who was very religious. Right? Like Charles Darwin. And Charles Darwin went to a seminary. A lot of people don't know that. But he had an abusive dad and he, he wanted to reject everything that his dad was. So if someone had come along and dealt with his actual problem, we might not have the theory of evolution taught in schools today. Um, that's how powerful those motives can be. Um, Sometimes it's not the science, it's not the history, it's not the archaeology that people need, but it's, it's the emotional and spiritual attention. And, and you, if you deal with that, a lot of that opposition, you find out that's just an excuse, that's just pretend. That's, that's the wall that they've built to keep something from getting close personally. But we are going to deal with evidence. <clears throat> Sexual world. Mm-hmm. That, that's a, a really big one. Yes. How can God create people with these uh, instincts and then consider them sinful? Right. And, you know, right. Yes. So, so that's uh, you have, and and if you start looking at where all that comes from, and the experiences, and the and the background that people have. You see why they've they've developed these worldviews, and and so the the worldview that I have developed, and the way I was raised, and the way I was taught in school, and and all these things around me seems to contradict this Bible. This Bible must be wrong somehow. It must be those statements must be the statements of someone who was homophobic or blah 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 two thousand years ago, and it's easy to dismiss it that way or to dismiss it as, however, just not inspired. We are going to look at the various theories that um, that go into this. So, what are the? We just we're going to kind of do this in a similar fashion that we started out talking about Christ. If if Christ wasn't who he said he was, who was he? Well, if the Bible isn't what it claims to be, then what can it possibly be? What are the different? We have a Bible. It's here. What is the process? that gave us this Bible, if it's not inspired 
and given to man. How did it come about? What are the explanations for it? Just a bunch of good stories. Okay. So it, it's these uh, good stories written by men. Okay. What else could it be? Okay, some sort of um, some sort of uh, nefarious source, right? right so we're going to actually look at three. Um, if it's not dependable as what it is, as the Word of God, then it is one of these three things. We're going to handle them in this order. In fact, we're not even going to get through the first one today. Uh, that's probably the, the longest uh, one. It's a development. This, in other words, it was compiled over time. There were these, there was these stories, these good stories, and it started out as one thing. And, and what we have today is so far from from what it started as. And it was just compiled long, you know, just might, like most folklore and stories and fables. Um, some good morals, like Aesop's fables, kind of thing. Not not inspired. Uh, so if it wasn't that. If it wasn't this long evolutionary process that, that's brought us this, it could be a deception. You know, well, after it didn't all turn out the way the apostles wanted to because Jesus didn't resurrect and all that stuff, they made all these stories up. See, they made it all up for political power or money or whatever, you know. Um, so, if it... Well, what if they actually believed it? You kind of like Lord Lunatic Liar here, kind of is a similar thing. What if they actually believed these stories? In other words, they weren't lying for it. They were. They were. They really, honestly believed it, but they were just kind of deluded, right? Well, if it's none of those three, then we're going to have to see that it's by process of elimination what it says it is. So we're going to start with the first one, and. Uh, uh, the next two weeks um, are going to be maybe a little bit difficult material as we're going to be talking about manuscripts and things like that. Um, some of that might be interesting to you. Some of it might be boring. It's all really interesting to me. I'll try to make it um, interesting. So we're going to talk about the, the theory of development. Is it just a development? Um, it's... Yes. This is the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is the Bible. You just look at so we're going to talk, focus more on the New Testament, and I'll, I'll explain that. We'll just briefly touch on the Old Testament. I'll explain why. Um, but the theory is this: that that it, the Bible was written by men, and over subsequent changes or subsequent subsequent centuries, it was added to or changed or things like that until we have what we have today. Uh, you know, once the printing press kind of came and that kind of cemented things, uh, but uh, but it's a development. Uh, I heard a Church of Christ preacher about a couple years ago question the historical authenticity of several books of the Bible. Well, the book of Revelation, uh, he said, probably wasn't written by John. It was probably written around the, the year 130 or so by, um, uh, by a student maybe of John, maybe somebody like Papias or some, somebody like that. Oh, that's well. 
That's interesting theory. But if it's not what it says or claims to be, we have Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches who are in Asia. Revelation 1 and 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. That, that doesn't really leave a lot of wiggle room, but see, once we get a little too educated for ourselves, um, once you start that process of tearing down things or being too smart for your own good, where does it end? Why, why stop with John? Let's talk about Hebrews. Let's talk about Peter. Let's talk about... I mean, we can really tear down anything if you want to go down that road. It is either what it says it is or it's something else. Um, there's no really in-between. Um, and so you see, it, it's not just atheists who, who do that. Um, so I want to talk about the accuracy of the copies that we have. Um, so this topic is complex because of the way that the Bible is composed. It's not like someone sat down and wrote the Bible. And the New, the New Testament is incredibly different from the Old Testament. So we are going to very briefly handle the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't come under too much uh, criticism. Why wouldn't the Old Testament come under a lot of criticism? It's, it's, it, it is so attested to uh, by age uh, and there's just so much um, what's it called, historicity to it that, yeah, I mean, a couple of, well, maybe that was allegory, or maybe Genesis is kind of allegory, and maybe the flood story didn't really happen, but, but for the most part, no one questions the, the accuracy or authenticity of the Old Testament, but we will handle it a little bit. Now, it is composed completely different from the New Testament, where the Old Testament was written within a very small area by people who all knew each other, if you think about that, within a 50-year period from the first to the last book. Right? From about 44, 46, somewhere, I think, is when James is believed to be written. It's, one, it's either that or Matthew or Mark is one of the other that are written early. First Corinthians is written early. They're, they're very early. And the last book is believed to be composed as Revelation around the year 96 AD. So by all people who knew each other, met each other at least. Whereas the Old Testament, you start from, from Moses and you, you go on up through Malachi well, over a more than a 1,000-year period, people from Persia, people in Babylon, people, people in Israel, people in, you know, they've just been all over the place. It has that in it, but right, it, it's not all on one topic. There's prophecies of this, there's histories of that. You're right. Uh, so it's, it's not all on one very centralized topic. That's a, that's a really good point. It, it's very different. And so in trying to attack that, it's like, well, what are you attacking? You know, so, so it's not... We are going to handle it just briefly. Um, so it, as we talk about, it's ancient, but it's also non-threatening. Because it's about Hebrew faith. 
which is, was not a very evangelistic religion. It's a Jewish faith. What? It doesn't attack. It doesn't try to convert me, right? Jews aren't out there trying to convert everybody to Judaism. They're kind of their own thing, and so there's no need to disprove it. Christianity, on the other hand, is, is, a, is a different animal altogether. Well, they're trying to get me to believe this stuff, and they're trying to. That makes me feel threatened, and they're trying to tell me that certain things that I do are immoral. Well, now I'm threatened. So I've got to come up with an attack for that. This kind of blows all arguments concerning uh, the Old Testament apart. This is uh, Caves in Qumran, Israel. Uh, A boy, a young shepherd boy, uh, I I think around 100 years ago, somewhere, either either the early 20th or late 18th century, was out with his boy, uh, with his sheep. And was bored and was throwing rocks as boys do. And was trying to see if he could get a rock up into one of those caves. It was one of those holes, and he did, and he heard something break. As kids will do, he's like, I am going to investigate. And went up and found what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've heard of that. Dead Sea Scrolls is just—it was just a library, basically. And someone hid in these caves. Who knows for how long? It was hidden in there, uh, and it contains all sorts of stuff: Bible books, and there's war, different things about war and war strategy, and just all sorts of secular, political—just a mishmash of scrolls, right? In it was a large portion of Isaiah. And what was important about these were that these were dated. Once they start looking at the nature of the composition, they can kind of see the type of script, and and people who know how to do that can kind of place a date for it, the type of language that was spoken or written, um, as the words used, the word, various things. They can they can they can start dating the, just even the, the what it's written on, the style of parchments that it might be or whatever. This is how they made it at this time. Dates to about the year 100 A.D. So that means it's before Christ. That's very important because if there's any prophecies, we can now prove that those prophecies were made before Christ. Isaiah 53 is written before Christ. That's a fact now. It's not something that somebody made up later to try to prove Christ. That's important. But what was even more important than that, perhaps, our previous earliest copy of Isaiah dated to almost 1000 AD, about 946 AD. So we now have a document, two two documents with a thousand year span, and we can compare them. This is called textual criticism, where we not criticizing like I don't like the way you do that, but it, it's it's analyzing things, and we can take two documents and analyze and go. Okay, these are the changes. These are not the changes. Almost no changes. In a thousand years, almost no changes. There's misspellings. Spellings are different. Um, sometimes numbers, uh, specific numbers, might be, might be a little bit off or whatever. But textually, no changes in a thousand years. 
So you don't understand, especially, and Jewish people were more, um, they call themselves the people of the book. Ezra set up a school to, uh, in, in, uh, in Babylon and in Persia to, to translate a lot of this and write a lot of this down. If they, they put a number at the end of each, uh, at the end of each line. And then they would add them up. And then they would add them up again. At the end of each line, they'd count the number of letters. They didn't have spaces between words, which makes it all confusing. And they would count the number of letters. Then they would add those numbers, and they'd kind of have someone check those numbers. Now imagine going through and counting up all those numbers and getting the wrong number. A Jewish scribe knew how many letters were in the Old Testament. Total. And if the number didn't match at the end, they threw the copy away. <laughs> they placed a high degree of importance on accuracy. In other words, imagine that would take years and years and years of work. One scribe might spend years of work on one copy. And to have it thrown away? Your life work? That's why you can get a thousand years and have almost no differences. So, um, that's the Old Testament. And that's really, the Dead Sea Scrolls is it. Just any arguments about the Old Testament, let's bury those. And we can move on to the New Testament. Well, again, it's only for a small portion of the book of Isaiah. I don't know about how small it is. I think it's pretty significant, but um, it's not like the whole book, no. no But it's... I don't think there might be other... I I know that Isaiah is the most significant uh, Bible book in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't know what else. But it's it's significant enough to establish a pattern. Uh, You know, if if, if that compares, you're not going to have, like, all of a sudden, oh... uh, you know, Genesis is way off. It's not likely that people doing the same thing with Isaiah are going to suddenly mess up all over the place in the book of Psalms. You know what I mean? It's just, you know, if you have somebody with a work ethic and they do have a great work ethic in this area, you're not going to expect them to have a poor work ethic somewhere else. It's just, just kind of know what you can trust. The New Testament is slightly different we possess 6,000 Greek, not even foreign other languages, we, even more of those, just Greek manuscripts. Now, they're not all complete. In fact, some of them are very small. But they are going to show something very significant as we look at them. Uh, we're not going to go through all of them, because there's 6,000 of them. We're going to look at a couple of them. Uh, but they are, that's an amazing amount of material when you compare that, and we will compare that to, to you know, what we possess in terms of Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or, or other people that we consider historical fact and, and we consider their histories as fact. We don't have near the material that we have for our Greek New Testament and Christ in particular. Uh, so, so that is, uh, it's an amazing amount of, of manuscripts. And so, as I said, we, in addition to that, we have other 
things in other languages, which even helps us in a different way. We could say, well, this was translated this way, and this was translated this way, and yet they all agree. So the sources that they come from are verifiable. Uh, and so it, it's a quite conclusive amount of um, material that we have. It confirms Christianity. So I want to look at a couple of the... Uh, and, and the other thing is, among all these... Um, among all these uh, manuscripts, there's no smoking gun. There's no, oh, well, this said this, but here's this major, here's this major statement that's really, really wrong. And, and here's a whole group of documents that say something completely different. You know, that nothing like that exists. Otherwise, we wouldn't have Christianity. It would have been blown apart years and years ago. Um, so we're going to look at a couple of um, man, early manuscripts, and these would be dated 1 to 200 A.D. So they're beginning shortly after they're written. You say, well, that's, that's a little while after. Understand that, that some of our manuscripts for, say, Alexander the Great or for, for some of these people come thousands of years, our earliest manuscripts that attest to them, and we, we accept them as fact. Um, so we're going to just look at a couple of these. When we, these are all written on papyrus, um, so they will be designated with a, a letter P and a number. Uh, and I don't know how they numbered them, why they numbered it. It's not like in order that they found them or anything like that. Um, so we're going to look at one called P137. As I showed you, <laughs> they're not that big. Some of them are just a couple of verses, uh, and they're written on front and back. So there'll be a couple of verses from something, and then on the back it'll be a couple of verses. Um, this one, we're not going to go in even in chronological order here. I'm just going to try to zip through these. I don't know if I'm going to, how far we'll get. But P137 uh, is a fragment of Mark. It dates to 150 A.D. So uh, the importance of this is that it's about 100 years or so earlier than our previous earliest copy of Mark. So it gives us something to compare much like, and again, there's no significant differences at all. Um, so early circulation uh, and no, no changes in about 100 years. That's significant. So, so the idea that things are changing as we go, and ev no, the wordings are the same, and uh, maybe a letter off or something here or there. Uh, but uh, a lot of times, what they did is they, because there are no spaces, they would repeat a letter. Um, you know, so so where there was a, a word had one M, they might accidentally have two M's. You know, if it ended, that's a natural mistake. But it's easily identifiable but no textual changes. All right, we're going to move right on to the next one. Some of these are going to get really interesting to me. Anyway, uh, P98. This is a little dated a little later. So well, that's 200 AD. We're 100 years later. And this is significant because of what it is. It is a fragment of Revelation. Uh, and on the front and the back, it has uh, portions of from 113 to 21, not solid, but but portions of that. And um, well, what's significant about that is what Revelations 1:13 through chapter 2, verse 1 talks about. Um, and also the fact that uh, 
this is an early copy of Revelation. I, I miswrote that. Revelation was a late book, so you have a late book sh- shown to have a copy in, and I believe this was found in Egypt, so it's already found, a copy of this is found circulating in a different country within a hundred years. That, that's important when we consider how long, as I say, how long it took to copy some of these. But Revelation 1.13 is important because it references his death and resurrection. So the idea that, oh, it took centuries for these things to evolve, we have the major premise of Christianity established very early. This is the death and resurrection. This is where he said, uh, where it purports that John is claiming that on the Lord's Day, that, that passage where we read, that Christ came and spoke to him. He says, and in that passage, uh, he says, um, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever forevermore. Amen. I mean, that's, that's, we have that confirmation of this statement within a hundred years of John's life being circulated as written by John. So, so that's important. Um, we're going to move on to the next one. This is P90. Uh, in fact, we're going to look at two together. Uh, that's dated to 180 A.D., and these have verses from John 18 and 19, which uh, reference Jesus' scourging and crucifixion and also uh, reference Pilate. Uh, and we have P52. P52 is our oldest manuscript, and it dates to uh, 130 A.D. It is also verses from John 18. Not the exact same verses, as you can likely tell. It's not likely to get from, from that small fragment to the same verses, but it also references Pilate, and it references Jesus' crucifixion, just a different, different verses. It actually, on this one, references the statement where Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth, which is kind of interesting. Um, I just kind of find that a funny coincidence. What is truth? Uh, and this is the statement found on our oldest existing manuscript. But here we have confirmation. Again, even though it's not the same exact verses, that there's no real evolution between what we have now and those early manuscripts. What's important about P52 is that being at 130, the, the, the Gospel of John was believed to be written around 90 A.D. That's 40 years earlier. So you are looking at whoever wrote that either saw the original or saw a copy of the original. That is no older than the second generation. Just because of the time it took to, to do that, that is impressive to me. That's cool to me. Um, and they are they both contain references to the most important event again that's not an event which is evolving the death and resurrection of Christ and, in, and until fairly recent in, in, in history Pilate was considered by 
critical thinkers to either not exist uh, because he's not really attested to a lot in uh, in a lot of sources, uh, only a few sources, or to be not nearly so significant. Right? And here we have multiple documents attesting to him and attesting to this trial uh, very early. So uh, this is our last manuscript we're going to look at. Uh, P66, as you can tell, is not just a fragment. P66 is important because it is a near complete copy of a book of the Bible. And he guesses as to what book of the Bible? Short book. No. One of our longest. On one page. No, that's that's the whole there's a whole there's a whole leaf, a bunch of leaves there. If you, it's kind of hard to tell because they're not in great condition. It's the book of John. Uh, John gets a lot of early, I don't know why, maybe it's just because he wrote later, um, that we have more scraps that exist. Uh, maybe it's because he didn't do a lot of traveling like Paul. I don't know what, uh, maybe it's because, I, I, there's a lot of reasons, but, but we've had Revelation, we've had couple from John. Now we have the book of John. Uh, it dates to um, about 200 AD. That's significant because now we have a, a full surviving or, or close to full surviving copy of the, um, of the book of John. Why is it so important that John specifically is being found? Okay. Because if they're questioning Revelation, whether he really wrote Revelation, right. then it helps prove that. Okay, so we've got right Revelation, John, uh, all these things. Uh, John is a late gospel, and all of John's writings are late. So it shows that even the late ones are in circulation early. The, the, the last of them are in circulation early. So we know that the rest of it is earlier. We're, we're proving a lot of important things about, um, about our Bible. It's also important because in John's writings, more than any of the other writings, Christ's deity is a central topic. That's what he was writing to prove. It's not just telling this is what Jesus did here or there. Not that there's less value in other New Testament books. But he wrote to prove Christ is God because he was writing against Gnosticism. And, and so, so we're establishing that this is not an evolutionary thought that comes you know, around the year 300 or 400 or 500. It was early. The most major ideas of Christianity were early, and we can establish that. Um, just two more things really uh, quick. We want to talk about codexes. And codexes are um, complete or nearly complete copies of a Bible, either New Testament or Old Testament. We're only going to look at two of them. Uh, and it's important for textual criticism because we, we can compare different 
uh, writings and, and see how complete uh, and, and look at large sections that you were talking about how, oh, it's only Isaiah or it's only this or it's only that. And so when we find a codex, uh, that's a kind of important deal. Uh, we have two, we, actually we have three old ones. We're going to look at two. Um, and it proves that the Bible content didn't evolve. Um, and it establishes the early acceptance of New Testament books that people were compiling these. Now they do differ, different codexes. If I was a, if I was a librarian and I, I, or you know, I'm a Bible theologian, I have a group of books that I like. Maybe I don't have access to all of them because some of the later ones like Revelation took longer to get into circulation. But we're going to look at just two codexes really fast. Um, some don't have all of the books. Uh, Codex Vaticanus, that's it. It is remarkable condition. How old would you guess that that is? Doesn't that look completely different from what we have? I mean, those little scraps. That dates to 380, only 100 years later. Things had got, technology is getting better. Right? It's, it's, it's really, it's nice. That's a almost complete New Testament and a lot of our Old Testament as well. Uh, it's missing five books of our Bible, but it shows no doctrinal changes. It, um, it's missing four very late books and also the book of Philemon, which a lot of people didn't know. They accepted that it was written by Paul, but didn't know because of the topic if it was a Bible book. You know, it seems to be a letter written to a guy about a slave. So, so a lot of people didn't necessarily include it as a Bible book, even though they accepted that it was written by Paul. And it's also missing the story of the adulterous woman in John. We're going to talk about that later because all old copies, our old, old copies don't contain that. Like, oh no, there's a problem with, with our Bible. We're going to talk about that uh, next week. And this is the Codex Sinaiticus, uh, which was found, um, there's stories about how it was found that I, I'm not sure are true. Uh, it actually seems to be found by a guy who liked hunting for old manuscripts and might have made up a story so that he could steal it. But we have it, uh, and it dates to 350 A.D. It is important because it is an entire copy of our old, or of our New Testament, though it is poorly translated. It is shown to be obviously written by very poor scribes, um, whoever they were. There's about four of them because they see different four different types of handwriting um, in a Saudi Arabian monastery. Uh, but it contains all the books of our New Testament by the year 350. We're believed. It does have some problems. It's missing a lot of the Old Testament. And there are numerous mistakes, but none doctrinal. That's important. There's no, like, uh, Jesus was in the tomb five days, or, you know, like, whatever. Uh, no doctrinal changes. So, uh, we're going to get, we'll get back to that a little bit later. I kept you a little bit over, but...